you have your Bible, let's go to John chapter 6 this morning. Just a few short verses. I hope this morning's message will be, I don't even know if I want to call it a sermon. I guess it is one. Um, I may not be quite as rambunctious as I normally am, as I just want to bring you through some of the most, I think, four of the most profound verses in Scripture. As we continue on with conversations in Christ, and I've titled this sermon what I have, but I want to start with a quote from a gentleman, a pastor, who just recently went home to be with the Lord. James Montgomery Boyce said this, if these verses are understood and are allowed to penetrate the heart, they will cause the Christian who feeds upon them to be sickly no longer. Instead, that person will grow and become strong. They are verses that carry us deep into the mind and heart of God. They are given to fix our minds upon the grace and sovereignty of God in all things. I've titled my sermon this morning, The Power of God's Love in the Person of Jesus. The Power of God's Love in the Person of Jesus. Again, I do love the way that we come to a passage with a, which coincides with us coming to the table of the Lord, as this is the first Sunday in March. And these verses, John chapter 6, verses 37 to 40, have been the source of great controversy because they deal with issues of God's sovereignty and the fact that God is all-powerful. He is in control of all things. Nothing happens without side his say so and yet they are juxted up against in a juxtaposition of man's responsibility and it's often debated so let me read these four little verses for you this morning john 6 starting in verse 37 this is the word of god jesus speaks and says all that the father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I, Jesus, will never cast out. And here's why he said this, verse 38. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me. That I should lose nothing of all that he, God, has given me, Jesus, and here's the promise, but raise it up on the last day. And here's the summary. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. May God add His blessing to the reading of His Word. These are four little verses, but I need you to see four huge statements and realities let me summarize the passage in verse 37a those whom the father gave jesus shall come to him that's a reality next in 37b those who come to jesus would be and can be certain of his welcome all that come to me i will never cast them out i will never reject them verse 38 the reason for Jesus appearing among men was to do the Father's will. It's the reason He came. 
verse 39, the Father's will was the preservation of those whom He had given to the Son. And then lastly in verse 39, this preservation is the guarantee of eternal life to the believer sealed by the resurrection at the last day. Now I need you to once again remember why the Apostle John has written this gospel for us. You and I are supposed to come to a certain understanding. When you and I read the Gospel of John, you are to know and and what is contained has been specifically and specially chosen for you and I to arrive at a conclusion. And in coming to that conclusion, we're to respond in a certain way. And by responding a certain way, we'll experience a particular something. Spot it again. All right, I'm going to read it. John 20, 30 and 31. These are verses I've read many, many times. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. That's his disclaimer. Now, this is what he says. But these are written, including John 6, 37 to 40. These are written. Why? So that you may believe, what? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And here's the result of that. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. But reading this book and arriving at these conclusions, I submit to you this morning, will bring you some challenges. And John chapter 6, 37 to 40, is one of those challenges. And you're not alone. If you remember earlier in the book, in John chapter 3, Nicodemus, who is that great educator and teacher of Israel, he would have been the classic Ph.D. theology student. And when Jesus looks at him and says, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Nicodemus doesn't go, ah, now I get it. He's confused. He's even incredulous at times. He looks at Jesus and says, how can a man be born again? I need you to realize many men and women have struggled with John 6, 37 to 40. Many of them overreact and say things like, I'm never going to read the Bible again. Or I'm never going to read anything in the Bible that's hard for me to understand, especially if it hints at something I don't like or agree with. And so the reaction is, well, I'll ignore it or I'll explain it away. Others read this type of passage and overinterpret it giving way to things like fatalism and since God determines everything, well, why bother? So nobody pray and nobody witness and let's just everybody do their thing and what will be will be because it's all been predetermined anyway. Yes, this passage does deal with God choosing us. I can't make it say something it doesn't say. It does deal with God keeping us. But did you see it also deals with Jesus saving us, Jesus welcoming us, And you've got to take 37 to 40 with 35 and 36. When Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And anyone who comes to me, right? If you're hungry, I will give you food. If you're thirsty, and he says, I will come and I will welcome you. And on this Lord's Supper Sunday, let me suggest that our passage is meant to amaze us. It's meant to amaze us with the power of God's love in the person of Jesus Christ. You see, the same Apostle John who wrote these verses, quoting Jesus, would much later in his life write another letter. 
He writes the three letters called 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John in this epistle, 1st John chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. This John who said, this is what Jesus said, also says, See or behold what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are children, God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. Now notice, and everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. So let me suggest, as we come to the table of the Lord, which is supposed to be a communion meal, that instead of fighting over John 6, 37 to 40, instead of ignoring it, instead of being confused over it, let's start today by asking a very important question. Here's the question. Why me? Why you? Why me? Have you ever heard someone ask, you to help them answer that question. Why me? Why is this happening to me? I've had that asked me many times. I've had it screamed at me many times. I've heard people pray this many times. I've heard people cry this many times. It's dealt upon over and over again. And occasionally, I've had some absolutely amazing thing happen to me, and I blurt out, I can't believe this just happened to me. For instance, what do you think the 30 millionaires out at the Come By Chance refinery yelled out over the last couple of weeks when they were told that they are instant $1.9 million richer? Why me? I can't believe this happened to me. This is amazing. But, you know, I got to thinking, I don't know if you heard about the person in the United States that won the, what they call the Powerball jackpot. It was something like $250 million. And they were interviewed and they were, I can't believe this happened to me. And then Fox News carried the article that two weeks later they were diagnosed with terminal cancer and are going to die within a few weeks. And the person went from, I can't believe this happened to me, to why is this happening to me? You see, many people come up to me with all kinds of questions about theology. I had somebody call me just this week who, not a part of our church, is someone in the city who's desperate, they're struggling with anger, and they wanted to know if I do biblical counseling and wanted to know could they come see me. And they had all kinds of questions for me about how I preach and what my views of God and the Bible are and what my views on anger and anger management are and all these things. I get people that ask me questions about the Bible all the time. But you know what? Almost never have I been asked this particular question. Why did God save me? I don't know if I've ever been asked that question. You see, it sometimes seems as if we're thinking, well, why wouldn't he save me? Or we say things like, thank God for his grace, or but for the grace of God, thus go I. But are we really amazed by the measure of grace God has poured on us? We just sang, how wonderful, how marvelous. But do we really believe that? Do you remember 1 John 3? Behold, see what manner of love the Father had bestowed upon us. Now listen to me. Let me testify a little bit personally. 
For the record, I can't give you one good reason for God to save me. I can't. I don't have one good reason to offer up. <coughs> I'm a sinner. I have failed. I continue to fail. And I'm going to fail again tomorrow. I know what I'm supposed to do. And I find it hard to do. I know what I'm not supposed to do. And I find that easy to do. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> Praise Jesus, Mary. I'm glad you're here. It should sound familiar because Paul talked about this. In Romans chapter 7, he said, the things that I know I'm supposed to do, I find them hard to do. The things I know I'm not supposed to do, I find it easy to do. And then he says at the end, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And then this is what he explodes with. Oh, wretched man that I am. Steve Dodd, there's an exclamation point at the end of that. And then he says, who will deliver me from this body of death? He goes, oh, wretched man that I am. <coughs> Can you imagine if this is where Paul stopped? If this was the last that he ever wrote? We'd be miserable, wouldn't we? But listen to what he says next at the end of chapter 7 into Romans chapter 8. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Now then he says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. <coughs> Excuse me. This, my friends is where John 6, 37 to 40 comes from and why it's so important and why I want you to really allow these words of promise and hope to grip your heart and minds as we come to the table of the Lord. I'm just going to quickly walk through it and then we're done. Number one, in verse 38, God's powerful promise to the Son and the Son's promise to us. Look at what it says in verse 38. For I have come down from heaven, sorry, verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I believe this is one of the most profound verses in the Bible. It has to be. Just gaze upon what Jesus said and put it in the context, especially when you look back at the very end of the next verse, verse 36, where Jesus says, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet not believed. <laughs> Andrew Peterson does a great job summarizing this verse. The Bible teaches that God is in control of all things and therefore he has chosen people to be his children. Truths that Jesus emphasizes in verse 37. And some of you will be saying, well, here's the Bible teaching. There's only a few chosen people who will become Christians. And I'm afraid I'm not among those who have been chosen by God. So what's the point of seeking God? But alongside that first truth, there's also the teaching that God's choice is gracious and lavish and generous. And the balance between God's sovereign choice and His gracious invitation is captured by Jesus' words when He says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. Can I tell you this? This was something my, my college professor said to me. I've never forgotten it. I have never met the sinner who came to Jesus who God didn't want. I have never met the sinner who came to Jesus who God didn't want. Paul Tripp reminds us, unless you're willing to admit that your sin is real, 
destructive and leaves you guilty before God, the grace of Jesus Christ won't mean anything to you. In verse 37, you see the promise that God has indeed chosen a people as a reward for the obedience of His Son, Jesus Christ. Go read Isaiah 53. The prophet Isaiah predicted all this would happen. And then if you go to Revelation chapter 5, you get a glimpse of the, the future of this. When the angels and the myriad of people around the throne of God say, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seal. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Here's what I can say to you. I don't know all of who will be saved, but I know God will save. That's just the truth. As a reward for the suffering of His Son, you can go out into your homes, your neighborhoods, your extended families, your classrooms, your workplaces, and you can live out the gospel and you can share the gospel and you can know because of these promises that God will save people. That should excite you. Right now, y'all look like you've been hit in the face with a dead rabbit. All right? This should excite you. Jesus looks at this crowd and tells them, God has chosen and you must come. And then he says, whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. And this makes sense for two reasons. Don't forget what Jesus has just said. I am the bread of life. Come to me who, who will never hunger and never thirst. And then look how he ended it. This is important because you need to understand that the promise comes with a warning. See, Jesus says, what he does here, not to deter the earnest seeker, but to awaken the self-satisfied traditionalist. This is a shock to a religious person. This crowd is largely made up of the religious, like the Pharisee of Jesus' parable in Luke 18, who felt that he had God under an obligation to him by his own righteousness. Many people thought because they were good, religiously observant, upstanding Jews, that God had to save them. He owed them. Jesus is warning. Listen, this appeal is given on the basis of assured welcome to all who would have come for the spiritual benefits that he had to offer. In other words, you must believe in who Jesus is and what your need is. Secondly, Jesus promised to do what God has sent him to do. Verse 38 into 39. Jesus looks at the crowd and he says, look, I've come to do the will of God. He says it in 38. He says it again in 39. And the will of God is powerful and beautiful and something we must remember and quote daily. Can I say to you, if it's the will of God to save you and to keep you, I know it's a cliche. I know in some circles of Newfoundland, it's not popular to believe. But listen to me, friends. Once saved, always saved. When you belong to Jesus, you cannot lose your salvation. If you can, why bother? I think it is the most pathetic way to live life to think God gave me something and then he may take it back. That promotes anxiety. If God is the one who saves, then it just makes sense that he does not and cannot break his will. And we're going to revisit this in John chapter 10. It's what Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 is all about. By grace are ye saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. 
not of works, lest any man should boast. Remember, see what kind of love the Father has given to you. Why did God save me? (laughs) I have no good reason to give you except He loves me. He loves me. And you guys can think about this. There's all kinds of practical examples in your Bible. What about Peter? I mean, if anyone failed, is not Pete the great example of someone chosen by God who Jesus kept? A.W. Pink says, if Peter was not cast out, no Christian ever was or ever will be. This fellow ran his mouth more than any car salesman you'll ever meet. This guy was the king of the infomercial. Right? This is the guy that said, they'll all leave you. I won't leave you. I don't know him. Right? This was the guy when the transfiguration said, Jesus, put the whole gospel plan on hold. Let's build some temples and let's have a big love fest here on, to, on the mountain. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Yes, this is the same guy that Jesus said, feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And we know the difference, don't we? We've got to take it to heart. And Peter, remember Paul? Paul was this great vagabond who religiously persecuted the church who God gloriously saved. And yet, in his salvation, when John Mark failed, kicked the guy to the curb. Post-salvation, wrestled and argued with God about some physical ailment. And yet was kept. What about Timothy? Who was timid and shy, a bit of a coward. And you know the opposite of that, right? You know those who claimed to be it but weren't it. Is not Judas a wonderful example in Scripture of someone who thought, if I'm in a garage, I must be a car? Because you're in a garage doesn't make you a car. Because you're in a church doesn't make you a Christian. What about Ananias and Sapphira who thought respectability could be bought and manipulated? What about Demas that Paul said in 2 Timothy, Demas has forsaken me having loved this present world. What about 3 John, Diotrephes, who loves the preeminence. And then in verse 40, Jesus tells us God's will is to keep those who are His. He's going to keep those who are His. Jesus repeats Himself for profound effect. Look, it's God's will. If He gave them to me, they can't be lost. If you come to me, I will always keep you. He says it over and over again. Those who come to me will be saved and stay saved. It's no less the Father's will that Christ should receive sinners than that Christ should preserve saints. Both things are alike. Martin Luther says this, This offers the greatest comfort and is intended for the weak conscience which is uncertain about its relationship to God and lives in constant dread of having an unmerciful God. Such a turbulent heart can be hushed and stilled by this text. It can repose and base its faith on the person of Christ. You see, here's the rub. God calls us to believe in His Son. Jesus calls us to believe in Him. The Spirit only ever points to the Son in glory to the Father. So here's my question for every one of you, and I love you, but here's my question. Do you, do I believe in Jesus? Not just about Him. Do you trust Him with your life? 
Now let me get practical. Do you trust him with your spouse or your marital status? Do you trust him with your singleness? Do you trust him with your kids? Do you trust him with your health? Do you trust Jesus with your money? Although may I say it was never yours to begin with. Do you trust Jesus with your job? With your career? With your relationships? Do you trust him with your family? With your hopes and your dreams? Do you trust Jesus Jesus with your past? Do you know how many people, the thing that I have found the most amazing, I have coming back to Newfoundland to the place of my past is how many friends and acquaintances I have met that are trapped in the past. They literally live their lives prisoner to the past because they don't trust Jesus with it. The most profound conversation I ever had with my mom, who I adore, was to challenge my mother to give the past to Jesus. Because she was a prisoner to the past. Some of us are prisoners to the present. Do you trust Jesus with your here and now or with your future? Notice what Jesus says in the passage. Who looks on the Son and believes in Him. (laughs) And that should sound familiar as well. Do you remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus back in John chapter 3? As as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, and you got to look upon the Son of Man. This is what Jesus says only a couple of chapters later. He closed this out. You see, faith in Jesus is what we're talking about. Listen to me. Confessing your sin, repenting of your wicked ways, living a holy life, reading the Bible, praying, acting like Christ, becoming like Christ, listen to me, are all responses to Jesus, not conditions to have Jesus. That's important for you to get. And I love my favorite favorite preacher of history is Charles Spurgeon. And he says, listen, faith is not a blind thing for faith begins with knowledge. It is not a speculative thing for faith believes facts of which it is sure. It is not an unpractical dreamy thing for faith trusts and stakes a destiny upon the truth of revelation. Faith is believing that Christ is what he said to be and that he will do what he has promised to do. And then you expect this of him. You see, I know all kinds of people, you're looking at me, who can tell me who Christ claimed to be. You can tell me what Christ claimed to do, but you don't live your life expecting Him to do that for you. I just realized something. i got to apologize because I said I was going to get worked up this morning. J.M. Boyce sums it up like this, since Jesus said that he was dying for the sin of mankind and that he would save any who would commit themselves to him, saving faith is therefore just believing this and putting your life into the hands of the Savior. Oh, I want you to get what this means. You see, here's my thing. What does it mean to come to Jesus? I don't know. The older I get, the more sick and tired of the churchy cliches we have. 
We hear this all we, all we time, right? How many types of words and phrases and the like do we have in our churches? And we hear, right? Are you saved? Have you been born again? Are you converted? Do you believe in Jesus? Come to Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Have peace of God. Have peace with God. Have the peace of God. We sing songs like more than amazing or amazing grace. Well, what's so amazing about it? Really? We sing the modern, he's a good, good father. And I want to look at everybody and go, stop singing. Somebody tell me what they mean. We love it as well with my soul, but let me ask you here today. Is it well with your soul? So, let me give you an example. This past week, a good friend of mine, Ray Ortland Jr., tweeted out this tweet. I want to live my life responding with kindness rather than reacting with irritation understanding people before I critique their positions, praying more for the opposition, conflicting redemptively, repenting quicker. And I read that and I instantly went like and retweet. And I no more did it and I went, I'm not doing any of that. I lose my temper. I get impatient. If someone hurts me, I want to hurt them back. Like that's the gut reaction of how I live my life. I love this. I long for this. Are you having a Romans 7 flashback? I know, and I want to do this. I know this is what I should do. I know I'm going to find this hard to do, and I'm going to fail at it more than I succeed at it. But when I remember John 6, 37 to 40, this will still and always be my desire, and I won't quit or give up even though I'm not going to hit a home run all the time because Jesus is pleased if I get up to bat and bunt. So what does this mean for you and I today as we come to the table of the Lord? Here are the summary statements. If you take notes, write these down. Remember them this week. It'll change your life. God is the one who saves, and we are called to trust in that alone. Why did God save me? He didn't have to. You're not attractive. You can't earn it. You'll never keep it or maintain it or deserve it. Because he's the one who does it. John Stott put it this way. If you add anything to Christ, you lose Christ. Salvation is in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. This table will only mean something to you if that's real to you. Other than that, this is just a tradition and a formality. Secondly, Jesus will not and cannot do anything but the will of God. He can't lie. He cannot but do this for you. And Christians, listen to me. Our calling is not to work or earn or maintain or convince. We're called to rest and respond, to trust and obey in that order and look to Jesus always and only. You know what? Too many people in Baptist churches are trying to obey and trust. And it's trust and obey. You'll never obey if you don't trust. And you guys know this. All the gurus that are out there, 
the South Beach diet, the Atkins diet, the all-carbs diet, the no-carbs diet, the all-sugar diet, the no-sugar diet, the all-fruit diet, the no-fruit diet, the all-vegetable diet, the, the all-bacon diet. I'm a fan of that one. <laughs> Why do people do these diets? Because they trust the person who says to do this. That's the reason why. So let me ask you some questions. Are you a Christian? Why are you a Christian? How do you respond when someone asks, why are you a Christian? Because have you ever noticed that when someone says, why are you a Christian? That our first initial response is to tell them what we did. Have you ever noticed that? Why are you a Christian? Well, well, there was a day when I knelt down beside my bed or I went forward and I said this prayer and I did this and I did that. And it's very you did stuff. And I don't even think, I'm not saying that you mean to do this. It's, 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 it's that you think, you're not thinking deliberately. It's a subtle thing. But listen, it's not what you did. It's what Christ did. Tim Keller puts it this way. There are only two ways to read the Bible. Is it basically about me or basically about Jesus? What I must do or what he has done. When someone asks me, why am I a Christian? I'm just going to start saying, because Jesus loves me. That's it. Have you ever considered how one gets saved? See, one of the most passages we turn to was Acts 16.31, right? The Philippian jailer, when he's there in the prison and Paul and Silas have this big prayer meeting and the, and the, the, the earth shakes and the, the doors fling open and everybody, and so he's going to kill himself. And, and Paul says, don't kill yourself. We're all here. And he says, good sirs, what must I do to be saved? His immediate response is, tell me what to do. <laughs> And have you ever noticed Paul never answers that question? His response is, believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now, I want to end by giving you a real life example of this. We had a man that came to this church not too long ago, moved to the Northwest Territories. His name is Kevin McDonald. Kevin has a little group that I'm a part of where he sends out Thursday messages. And Kevin wrote this this past Thursday, and I, I, I read this, and I was like, this was God-ordained. I, I woke him up this morning to get his permission so I could do this. I texted him, and I don't know, it was like 3.30 in the morning uh, in the Northwest Territories. This is what Kevin writes. He said, I've been asked a few t- things regarding my faith. Are you a Christian? Do you believe in God? Do you trust in God? Do you believe there's a heaven or a hell? I'm sure most of you encountered similar questions. But I've never been asked if I considered myself to be a committed follower of Jesus. And I've been pondering it for a couple of weeks now. You would think that this would be an easy answer, but I find myself struggling. Gentlemen, my relationship with Jesus has almost nothing to do with me. The only thing I have ever done in this relationship was to stop relying on me. It's much more than that. He is more committed to leading me than I'm committed to following him. Can I really consider me to be a committed follower when there are days I feel like I'm the furthest thing from a Christian? Or are those, there, are, are there those days that his commitment to me shines and he drags me through the day kicking and streaming? Is it considered committed when I hear a sermon and the preacher say something I disagree with and my first response is, what a moron. I asked him if that was me. Or is it he who gets the credit when the voice in my head says, who do you think you are? Do I consider myself to be a committed follower? 
Wow. I'm not even sure how to rightly respond. I'm thinking about a conversation that Jeff Percy and I had about the power of choice or the illusion of it. And I think I can agree with Jeff about there not being a choice when it comes to my commitment. My commitment exists because there is no other way. To choose otherwise is simply not an option. It is to me a nece- is as necessary as the air I breathe. I can't explain it without coming across as having more to do with this than I do. You see, my commitment is not so much to follow Jesus, but that my commitment is a manifestation of Jesus. To question the act of following him is no different than asking if I can blink without closing my eyes. It doesn't, just doesn't make sense for it to be any other way. I can't answer this question without considering the 12 disciples. They followed him blind. By this, I mean they followed him not knowing where they were going or what was going to happen. They gave up their lives and walked with him. They knew a Messiah was coming and Jesus said it was him. I have to believe that God intervened and gave them a divine sense of assurance and that the decision to leave everything they knew was the right decision. That gentleman is the committed follower. We follow Jesus with the knowledge of what he has done and where he can bring us, yet we will turn our backs on him in an instant when the journey gets too rough. But he'll spin me right around again and set me straight every time. Thank God that my commitment is reliant on him. So the one word answer to the question is, yes, I do consider myself to be a committed follower of Jesus Christ, but only because he is committed to me. How could I not be chasing after the one who saved my life? How could I possibly deny the one who died for my sin? When I fall short, can I really say no to his forgiveness? Someday I'll blink and my time in this world will have ended. And when this time comes, our Lord Jesus Christ will be waiting to welcome me. Can I really say, no thanks, I'm good? Yes, I am a committed follower of Jesus Christ. And I thank him every day that I don't need to rely on me for that commitment. Gentlemen, I've always been a believer. I've not always been a truster, and I've definitely been a rejecter. Recognizing what Jesus did for me meant that I had to die to myself. That was the hardest and easiest thing I've ever done, and I can't imagine it any other way. And my prayer for you this week, that you won't measure your commitment to Christ by any means of humanness. And when you feel like you've fallen short, you can rest in knowing that he is committed to you. And I ask you to pray the same for me. I love you. That's profound. J.M. Boyce said this, someone will say, but what must I do? And the answer is, you must stop doing. You've done enough already. You've ruined yourself by your doing. Your question should not be, what should I do? But rather, what he has done. The answer to that question is simply, that has all been done. He died for you. The work is finished. You need only to let go of your attempts to earn God's favor and fall instead into the gentle and waiting arms of the Savior. Do you see why I love this passage so much? This is what has gripped my heart. And so as we come to the table of the Lord, Christian, Does the power and the promise, the committed love, the committed company of Jesus here motivate you to share it with others? Oh, if you get this, you want, you must give this to somebody else. You can't keep this to yourself. It's too beautiful. The promise of Jesus here, the commitment of the gospel is not simply for you and I to cling to and hide. 
It's to enjoy and give away. We're commissioned to go into all the world, but we can start with our homes and our neighborhoods and our workplace and our classrooms. Kevin DeYoung says the Great Commission is so wonderfully freeing because it's big enough to fill the whole world and yet small enough for every single one of us to play a part. Do you know Jesus? Do you believe in Him and who He is and what He has done? Do you trust and understand just how much God loves you and in glorifying Himself is actually displaying His love? A.W. Tozer says, salvation is the work of God in the heart made possible by the work of God on the cross. That's what we're about to fellowship in. And I leave you with God's word. Jeremiah 9, 24. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, and that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Oh, that we would be a church that would boast in that. Not in how well we can recite Scripture, or how many Bible trivia games we can win or how good our theology is all listed on our website. Now I boast in this. Why would Jesus save me? Haven't got a clue. Except that he loves me. What are you resting in? Not me. Him. Where do you run to when you fail? To the one who loves me even though I'm a failure. What motivates you? The fact that I'm his already. Would you let that, listen, <laughs> Jennifer shared this in her heart. That's what frees you when you struggle with anger and frustration. That's what frees you when the bank account is empty and the bills are still coming in. That's what gives you confidence. That's what this table represents. To be a bit flippant, let's party about that. Hey, for those of you who went to the basketball game, the, Let's make some noise. That's what they said over and over again at the basketball. Make some noise. And I was like, where's the Christians to make some noise about the forgiveness of Jesus? Let that be what excites you. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you because you're awesome. I thank you because you love me and I don't know why. I thank you because you saved me and I don't deserve it. I thank you because you keep me, even though I'm a colossal failure. I thank you that you'll never let me go. I thank you that you're coming back. And I thank you that you feel that way about every person in this room and every person in this city. And Lord, as a reward for the suffering of your son, would you increase our faith to believe there's other people in this city who need to hear this and will respond. Oh, God, wake us up from our apathy and our defense. Lord, I heard more spiritual truth at a basketball game when an announcer said, we're here to defend the rock. Oh, God, may we know that the rock of ages is our Redeemer. And He loves us and will never let us go. And may we take that attitude into the table of the Lord. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen.